Again, Hill family, sounds like as we're singing, it sounds like we are mostly back from vacation, energized and feeling well. That's what it sounds like in the singing of the room. So it's good to see everyone uh, this morning. Um, as Pastor Bob said, we are beginning a new series in the book of Acts. So if you want to turn there, uh, you can do that, please. It's really hard to uh, overstate, I think, the importance of, of good preparation. Uh, there are probably very few things that we do important in life that, that don't require some level of preparation. Uh, just yesterday, I spent most of my day doing three important tasks. Um, smoking meat for a, a gathering at my house later today. It's an important task. Painting a bathroom for my wife. That's an important task. And preparing this sermon. Yes, uh, your pastor has a touch of ADHD. Um, if you're wondering, that's me. Uh, lock me into a room, ask me to focus on one, just one single thing, and that will drive me crazy, and I won't get that one single thing done, most likely. And yet, um, uh, but give me two or three tasks, same time, and I'll knock them out. You can pray for my wife in that, obviously. But preparation is a vital part of almost every single area of our lives. And the importance of what we are uh, preparing for really is determined, uh, determines the nature of the preparation itself. All three of my tasks yesterday required differing levels of preparation. Right Before I could paint, I had to spend a few nights this week prepping the walls of the bathroom. Before I could cook the meat, I had to spend time seasoning it and trimming it and getting it ready. And I spent probably 25 hours this week prepping for what's taking place right now. But you think about the important things of your life, what's coming up this month, this year. Maybe it's a deadline. It's a meeting at work. Maybe you're having a baby. That seems to be a lot of people in our church. Maybe a wedding's on the calendar. Whatever it is, the nature of your preparation will be determined by the importance of the event itself that you have to prepare for. As I said, with Last week and again this morning, it's really with eager anticipation, um, we're beginning our sermon series this morning in the book of Acts, we're calling Empowered to Be the Church. Last week from Psalm 67, um, maybe we could say we somewhat dipped our toe into the pool of this study uh, by showing how the newness of the book of Acts was in fact prophesied and predicted long ago. We looked at specifically the promise made to Abraham and its fulfillment. And yet this fact in no way should minimize the significance or the, the staggering nature of God's new activity recorded within this book. Human history itself enters a new age in the book of Acts. As the long-awaited promise of the new covenant hope with the baptism of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the birth of the church. There's no more important, we might say, period of history we could give our attention to than this period of history as a church. And given the importance of this transitional moment in redemptive history, we would expect, we might expect a level of preparation, which is exactly what we find, which is exactly the contents of chapter 1 of the book of Acts. I don't title my sermons, but if I was to title this sermon, it would be called The Preparations for Pentecost. Preparations for Pentecost. And 
By way of this preparation, here's what I think we want to learn this morning from the text. That God promises to empower us to take part in or to advance His particular mission in accordance to our faithful obedience. And God promises to empower us to advance His particular mission. But He does so in accordance to our faithful obedience. I was grateful for our, our brother Jerry reading uh, Luke chapter 24. I felt like we should read it in full. If not, I'd be jumping back to it so much this morning. I want us to hear Luke 24. And because we have such a long text, I'm not going to do my usual of reading the entire Acts chapter 1 now. We're going to read it as we go along. Now, the book of Acts, we'll begin with some introductory thoughts. The book of Acts comprises the second part of a two-volume history penned by Paul's faithful ministry companion, Luke the great physician. Luke's uh, gospel, the gospel of Luke, makes up the first volume. The introduction to both are dedicated to a man named Theophilus, or as it's re- he's referred to in Luke, most excellent Theophilus. And that dedication of both really highlights their connection. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, we see it before us, says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. This this reference to the first book is in fact a reference to Luke. Where he says that he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The book of Acts is to be interpreted as the companion to Luke. The continuation of Jesus' work. And Luke writes as a credible historian. That's going to be important as we go through the book of Acts. He, he writes an accurate history um, for us. And that's not an easy thing to do in the ancient world. Right? There were no libraries or databases for resources, no Wikipedia. I'm just kidding, students. Don't do that. I talk to my son a lot about that. Never cite Wikipedia, ever, ever. Luke had none of these. And yet Luke Acts is described by many as an extraordinary, uh, accurate record of history. For instance, 19th century William Ramsey, who he began studying Luke as a skeptic to disprove its historic reliability. Upon tracing its work in relation to the Mediterranean world, uh, he concluded that in fact it's an exceptional, that Luke is an exceptional historian whose writing should be trusted. Quote. In Luke chapter 1 verse 1, we find really Luke's process of compiling a narrative of things that have been accomplished. He says, things that have been accomplished among us. I'm not going to turn back to Luke chapter 1 this morning, but you might want to do that later on today. And he says there that he used, he he, he compiled a narrative by way of personal research, he says. Talks about eyewitness testimony. He even talks about documented sources that he used. So he says in verse 3 that his aim was to write an orderly account. Luke was concerned in both, he is concerned in both, Luke and Acts to be writing a a historic count that should be trusted. But Luke is concerned with something far greater than mere historical accuracy. Um, Luke was concerned with connecting the events of Luke-Acts with the history of God's activity prior in in through, through Israel. Luke chapter 1 verse 1, he speaks of, I mean, Acts, uh, Luke chapter 1 verse 1, he speaks of compiling the things that have been accomplished or fulfilled among us. 
The tense of, of the verb there, have been accomplished or have been fulfilled, is a clear indication Luke understands the events as being as what God had accomplished in redemptive history through His Son. Or what Jesus began to do and teach, he says in Acts. Implying that Acts contains the continuation of God's work in His Son through His apostles and His church. This explains how Stephen in Acts 7 and Paul in Acts 13, uh, their sermons, they they provide a, a detailed history of Israel. But they do so in order to highlight their continual participation in that history itself through Jesus. As one author summarizes here, he says, Luke writes to provide assurance that these events recorded really are the work of God. That God really has been accomplishing His purposes. That Jesus really is who He said He was. And that believers in Jesus really are the true people of God. But interpreting Acts also requires us Not only seeing the connection to the Old Testament, but not losing sight of the uniqueness of what's being described in the book of Acts. There is continuity to what happened, but there is most certainly discontinuity. As I said, the arrival of a new age is taking place in the book of Acts. The day which the prophet Joel looked forward to, as we talked about through our study in Joel, a day when God's Spirit would be poured out upon His people in a new and a particular way, that period has arrived. Peter says. The book of Acts records a transitional moment in redemptive history. And that means that while God's Spirit is just as active today in His people for the advancement of His continued purposes in the world today, we should not expect that activity to always look exactly the same way as it did in this particular moment of history. Right interpretation of the book of Acts requires us wrestling with both its descriptive and its prescriptive nature. Take, for instance, the choosing of Judas' replacement this morning by the casting of lots, or might we call it a modern-day drawing of straws. Right, while this text describes the sovereign activity of God in, in a particular way, in a particular moment, meant to teach us something, no doubt. We don't interpret this as prescribing how we choose leaders today in the church. Right? Y'all didn't draw straws for me to be the pastor of the hill. Or take Ananias and Sapphira, who are struck dead for their dishonesty regarding their financial dealings with the church in chapter 5. Again, that text can't be prescribing exactly the way God acts today in His church or many congregations, and might I say pulpits, would shrink this morning. Recognizing the descriptive... And prescriptive nature of Acts is key to its proper interpretation. All right? And this distinction will prove especially helpful when dealing with the issue of the gifts. Tongues, prophecy, healings, which are so prevalent in the book of Acts. That's enough introductory thoughts, though. We need to turn our attention now to the text in chapter 1. And really the preparations for Pentecost that are before us. And in particular, I want us to see what I'm going to say call kind of three ingredients, or might we say three elements of preparations for Pentecost that we need to consider. And the first one is this. We need to look at God's unique promise in verses 4 to 5. Now the preparation for, preparations for Pentecost all began with a specific command given in light of a unique promise in verse 4. Look at it. 
says, And while staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now the uniqueness of this promise is really matched by the uniqueness of the scene itself. Here the the resurrected Jesus is speaking before his ascension into heaven. Luke records this to be a period of 40 days when in resurrected glory Jesus not only appears, but he appears to teach concerning the kingdom of God, it says. And during this time, the text says, he ordered, he commanded the disciples not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father. In fact, a promise that they had already heard previously from Jesus concerning the issue of baptism, this issue of baptism. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, he says. This promised baptism of the Holy Spirit is is said to be both connected to and yet contrasted from John's baptism. They're connected in that both point to the work of Jesus. But John's was one of Preparation, we might say, requiring repentance and the forgiveness of sins. The baptism of of the Holy Spirit is a sign that the long-expected Messiah had come, ushering in the new age the prophets had longed to see. This baptism points to the fact that the bridge between the old age and the new is crossed when Jesus, the Messiah, brings His very Spirit to bear upon His people. The final act of Jesus' earthly ministry, it's about to take place as he ascends to heaven. However, the next chapter of his work through his people is about to begin. And his point is clear. That work, this new work, this new activity that I'm doing, cannot begin until the uniqueness of this promise of the Holy Spirit comes to fruition. Now next week we're going to deal in chapter 2 in the actual event itself of the details of this event. But the promise given here clarifies the nature of Christianity in in a few very necessary ways. First, it's a reminder that the very act of becoming a believer necessitates the sovereign, supernatural work of God in our lives. Becoming a Christian requires God opening our eyes to the reality of our sin, leading us to repentance for the forgiveness of sin, as John's baptism makes clear. But becoming a Christian is more than that. Becoming a Christian requires God simultaneously, supernaturally, providing us with a new birth through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. We noted in our study of Joel's prophecy, conversion, becoming a Christian, is a supernatural reality. Christianity is about experiencing the new birth through the regenerating work of God's very Spirit. The book of Acts, the New Testament, but the book of Acts leaves no room for believing that becoming a Christian is merely about a mental ascent to some facts. Or about you simply changing your lifestyle or your, or your group of friends or deciding to hang around new people. Becoming a Christian is not about what you do. It's about whom you yield yourself to. Jesus. 
And His promised power to make you and me new. Becoming a Christian requires God opening our eyes to our sin. Leading us to repent and believe in Him. But resulting in us experiencing the regenerating work of His Holy Spirit in and through us. But this promise also reminds us, as Christians, how what God calls us to in the Christian life cannot be done apart from His sovereign activity in our lives. Apart from the work of Jesus, mediated through the Holy Spirit. Jesus says we can do nothing apart from Him. To be a Christian is to be dependent upon the enabling an empowering presence of Jesus for every moment of our lives. Any effective ministry church, we do, requires God's enabling power in us to carry it out and to carry out His particular mission, which we need to see next. So in verses 6 through 11, maybe we can say the second ingredient is God's particular mission. Luke records how Jesus' teaching here during this 40 days, it really focused on two things. It focused on the kingdom of God and it focused on the, spiritual, the spirit of God, which, which raised a question for the apostles. We saw that question in, in Luke 24. We see it here, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? For them, if the spirit was about to come, it seemed logical the kingdom would as well. But their question exposes a misunderstanding really of both, the kingdom of God and the spirit of God. John Calvin suggests here that there are as many errors in this question as words. I don't know if that might be a stretch, but I think his point's clear. The question does reveal a deep-seated misunderstanding on their part. As one commentator points out, the verb restore shows they are expecting a political kingdom. The noun Israel shows they are expecting a national kingdom. And the clause at this time shows they are expecting an immediate kingdom. The The resurrection power of Jesus had awakened something in them but had awakened their hope of Israel's return to a political dynasty and their liberation being being set free from Roman rule. But Jesus' reply points them in an entirely different direction. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, Jesus does deal with their question in terms of he addresses their concern for power, which is absolutely always tied to the question of kingdom, right? But God's power, he says, is inherently different than man's. And the rule and reign of God's kingdom will be set up not in terms of some geographical location on the map, but through the witness of his people and the power of his spirit to all nations. The kingdom of God is advanced through the King, Jesus, and the witness of His saving power to all people. And this witness supersedes any sort of man-made nationalistic boundaries. It's to go forth from Jerusalem, yes, but to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And these geographic locations, which, as we're going to see in the books, serve far more than just places on the map. Histories, history of division, might we even say bigotry and 
wrong understanding of God's purpose in redemptive history characterize these specific places. But they, they, this, this threefold kind of outline is going to help us think through the book itself. It's in, and it's going to be helpful as we interpret. Jerusalem, uh, recorded in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, we begin in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 1, verse 7, the gospel is preached. And very importantly, the gospel is preached and the miraculous signs which accompany it didn't come show about there. But then in Acts chapter 8, verse 12, in Judea, in Samaria, we see the same thing. And then in Acts chapter 13, verse 28, we see the same thing happen throughout the Roman Empire at that time, the ends of the earth. So God's kingdom will be marked and will go forth. And it will go forth and be marked by, a, might we say, international citizenship in his kingdom. But Jesus also addresses their misconception regarding the timing of the kingdom. At this time, speaks to its immediacy, they think. And while there is a now and a not yet to the kingdom, we dealt with that even a couple of weeks ago, and the timing of, of when the, the timing of when God will bring this not yet into the now is, is not for us to know, he says here. But what is for us to know, what is for them to know and for us to know, is what we are to be about during this time in between. From Pentecost until Jesus' return, we are to be about his mission of bearing witness to his saving power and his son through the power of his spirit to the ends of the earth. This is only reiterated in verse 9. Look at it. When he had said these things, they were all looking on. As they were all looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will return in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So in the midst of this discussion regarding the, uh, regarding the kingdom, Jesus ascends into heaven. He ascends to the right hand of the Father, the place of full authority and power, demonstrating Himself to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The ascension of Jesus marks the final act of His earthly ministry. Jesus was born. Jesus lived a a sinless, perfect life. Jesus died a, a substitutionary death on the cross for His people. He rose from the grave, demonstrating His power over sin and death. He appeared for 40 days, testifying to His resurrection power. He instructed His disciples. And then He ascended to glory. But this ascension was never meant to put a period on His ministry. The ascension of Jesus was simply serves as a divine comma, ushering in the new age of His church through the sending of His Spirit. Jesus promised in John chapter 14 through 16 that he must go away so that he can send another, the Holy Spirit. He says there to help us, to guide us, to empower us, to bring to remembrance all that he says as we're out bearing witness. And he said, just as the Father sent me into the world, I'm sending you into the world. Now the angels, who appear as two men in white robes here, um, their rebuke is really important. As the disciples are gazing into heaven, they ask, literally, what are, you, what are you doing? Right? Why are you gazing into heaven? Jesus is going to return in the same way he left. That can mean a lot of different things, but at the very least it means he's going to return in a time you don't know when he's going to come back. Just like the time you don't know when he just took off. 
What you do know is what he told you to be about. What is the church? And what is her mission in the world? I said last week, that's a question we're going to continue to come back at. What have we been empowered to be about in this world? We want to answer that question throughout the book of Acts. And Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is a key verse we can't miss for this. As the church of Jesus Christ, we are to remain focused on advancing His kingdom purposes by witnessing, testifying, proclaiming the saving power of Jesus in His Spirit to all nations. So while interpreting the times, gazing into heaven, maybe political engagement, a nationalistic zeal and pride, they may play a role in the life of the believer. They must never be confused as the mission of God's people. God has promised to empower His people for a particular task, a particular mission. We are to be witnesses of the glory and power of the ascended Lord Jesus amongst all peoples. There's a third ingredient here. So we see this promise, this unique promise, this particular mission. But we also see a unified obedience here in the text, beginning in verse 12. Look, I want you to hear this and hear it clearly. God is the main actor in the book of Acts. God, God's sovereign activity in His Son is the central theme on every page of this book. This fact has actually led many to kind of question the traditional, I say traditional because titles weren't added to the, to the original writings, these were added much later, the title of the book. And you might see the Acts of the Apostles. It's not a part of the original writing by the, um, by the Apostles themselves. And some suggestions range from the Acts of the Holy Spirit or the Acts of Jesus. Or more recently, one scholar has suggested the continuing words and deeds of Jesus by His Spirit through His apostles. Since that's just a bit long, I think Acts of the Apostles still makes the cut. I'm, right? But the argument itself, I think it's instructive. Because it recognizes that Acts hangs on God's sovereign activity in redemptive history. And yet, God has chosen to execute His sovereign purposes in this world through the obedience of His people. And that fact in no way diminishes His sovereign authority. It actually elevates it. It magnifies it. For God executes His exact purposes in His Son through His Spirit by way of folks just like us. Simple, ordinary men and women, boys and girls, on every page of this narrative. Yet they are ordinary men and women who exercise extraordinary faith in a unified obedience together. God saves 3,000 as Peter overcomes his fear of man. And he preaches before the very crowd who crucified Jesus. And the, the very crowd that he tucked tail in front of and ran away from. And God grants his church boldness and fills them with his spirit after they together lay themselves before him and ask for that very thing. 
God adds to their number day by day those who are being saved as they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to prayer, to sharing life with one another, and to evangelism, the text says. God breaks Peter's chains in prison. He flings open the doors of his cell in accordance to a gathered prayer meeting of the saints. And they're saints just like us. Because Peter shows up and they don't believe it's Peter. It was easier for Peter to get out of prison than get into a prayer meeting. God executes His sovereign purposes in and through His people as we respond with unified obedience to Him. And that's how chapter 1 closes. In two distinct ways. It says... In verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. And these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So Jesus had instructed his disciples to remain in Jerusalem and wait. He said it in Luke chapter 24. We hear it again here. But wait for what? Wait for Jesus to do what he said he was going to do. Wait for him to execute his promise of sending his spirit. So the text says they returned to Jerusalem. They went up to the upper room. The disciples with the women and Jesus' family. And they prayed. And notice how it's described here. All of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. The NIV reads, joined together constantly in prayer. And this word joined together or in one accord, it's an important one for Luke. He's going to use it some ten times, highlighting the, I think, the necessary unity of God's people in terms of their mission. And this unity or togetherness finds expression here in prayer. They were unified, therefore they prayed. And their unity also informed what in fact they prayed about. They prayed that God's promises would come to fulfillment through them. They understood themselves to be bound together in a radical unity because of Jesus. They understood themselves to be Jesus' people. Which took precedent over every other identifying marker they held. It takes time. We're going to see some missteps along the way in the book. But we see them constantly continuing to be unified for the mission before them. They were unified in a shared identity which dictated their shared activity in the world. They were unified in their obedience as seen in their prayers for God's promised purposes to come to fruition in them. God said wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit to come. They waited. They prayed for the Holy Spirit to come. And they persevered, the text says. They devoted themselves to this task. At every point in this narrative, we see God's people together remaining busy or persistent in their obedience to Jesus. So this is, I think that's what this final act tells us in the choosing of Judas' replacement, verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120 and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before him by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. 
For he was numbered among, among us and was allotted his share in his ministry. Now this man acquired a field which, uh, with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed open. It became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akodama, and that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one, let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Now Peter here cites portions or verses from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 to prove that both Judas's fall and the choosing of his replacement was spoken beforehand by the Holy Spirit, he says, through David. Now as a side note, there is no reason to conclude here, as some say, that the explanation of Judas's death here contradicts what we see in the Gospels, where it speaks clearly in the Gospels of him hanging himself. Luke's not trying to give us a, a play-by-play of how Judas died here. He's writing to a group of Christians who already know such details. So it's absolutely logical and reasonable to believe, without getting too graphic here, that After Judas hung himself, at some point his body fell headlong and he burst open. But I want us to see the apostles' response here, which is really important. Because united obedience in light of the word of God is what we see here. So one of the men who who have accompanied us during all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become... With us, a witness to the resurrection. Here's the qualifications for an apostle right here. Make sure we see those. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas and also Gustus and Matthias. Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So in response to the word of God, they they waste no time in fulfilling the place of Judas. No longer will physical descent through the 12 tribes of Israel mark out one's place in the kingdom. Kingdom access necessitates spiritual birth, the preaching of the gospel, which begins with 12 apostles. So it's important that he's replaced here. Also note here, As the apostles die out, they're not replaced later. But they're replaced here for a very important theological reason. But at the heart of what it means to be the church and to participate in God's mission as His people is our unified obedience. Jesus' high priestly prayer when He was praying for His people, praying for us, He said, before His departure, in verse 20, of John chapter 17. He says, I do not ask for these only, speaking of the disciples in front of him, but for those who who will believe in me through their word. Who's that? That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one, they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So the promise and purpose of God's Spirit empowering His people is that the world may come to know Him. But come to know Him through us. 
Our unity is to testify to the unity of the Father and the Son and their saving work in this world through their plan of redemption. What does it mean to be the church? It means to be radically unified. To be a people wholly devoted to one another in light of the gospel. It is a people who have, who have set aside preferential, political, ethnic, cultural differences for the advancement of the glory of King Jesus in this world. I praise God for what He's done in our church. We're different, but we're one. But we must forever remain on guard to maintain our oneness in Jesus. And how do we do that? By unified obedience to Jesus. I was on a high school basketball team that was a very divided group of immature dudes. Petty arguments, competitive kind of pecking order kept us divided. We even had a practice that broke out in fistfights one time. But somehow we, we could play together pretty good. Get us on the court against another team. and We were all about each other. We were a unified team that was pretty good. Why? Because we were actively engaged in the task that we were supposed to be about. We were actively engaged, might you say, in our mission. What our purpose was to play basketball against other com- uh, competing teams. Here's my humble opinion. Much of the division in our church today, we see it. The dividing over issues of politics, the dividing over issues of culture, I think stems from a mission drift. Because when the church drifts from its mission, unity will be found. Unity will be one, we might say. W-O-N but on something other than the gospel. The book of Acts makes clear that a church on mission for Jesus, one that advances His kingdom purposes, is a people united in their obedience to the King. That's what's most important to us. What He's called us to do and be about in the world. We are to be His witnesses for Him. We are to understand who we are and what we are about is to testify to the words and works of Jesus in the world today. And that cannot happen apart from His Spirit, which this entire chapter is preparing us for the coming of for next week. But it is His work, but His work in us. So He promises to use us by empowering us. And church, that means we must individually and corporately always be yielding to Him. Not yielding to ourselves. Asking, Lord, what do You want from me? But Lord, what do You want from us? What do You want us to do and be about? Because God has promised to empower us, but for a particular mission. Not for our mission. Not for the pastor's decided mission. Not for any group in our church's decided mission. For Jesus' mission. What He's called us to be about.
And he's called us to be about bearing witness to who he is and what he has done, making disciples of all peoples in all places. The rest of, of uh, we rest in the truth of his promise and his work in us by committing ourselves to obey him. That's what it looks like. You say, what, is it, what does it look like to rest in his promise of the Holy Spirit? It looks like obeying him. Because it's trusting that what he promised to give us his spirit for, to empower us for, is what we, in fact we need to be doing. So we, we demonstrate our, our trust in the Lord Jesus by doing what he said for us to do as a church. I'm going to click back to my first application this morning. Christianity is a supernatural reality. Becoming a Christian is about a supernatural birth. And I want us to hear that this morning again. We have many people who come among us and visit among us and around us. and Even some who might be around us all the time. Wanting to hear again with clarity what it means to be a Christian. It's not making certain decisions to do things differently. It's not about deciding to change your course of action. It's about yielding yourself to a divine person, to Jesus. And experiencing His new birth. In light of your repentance and faith in Him. I don't want you to be confused as we go through the book of Acts. I want us all to be on the bus we call Christians. I want everybody to get on there. We do that by placing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and resting in His promise that He will in fact do a new work in us. Empower us and enable us to live for Him. That's not you this morning. and You have questions. I have a Bible that I can talk to you from after service. Let's please do that. Church, I'm excited as we begin our study in the book of Acts. I want to ask you this week, prayerfully read chapter 2 multiple times this week and prepare yourself for this great moment in redemptive history we're going to think about, which defines who we are as a church and what we are to be about as a church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Father, we know nothing happens of any value, of spiritual value in our lives apart from those two realities, the word of God, the spirit of God. That is the book of Acts. The word is preached, the spirit is at work, and you do wonderful, miraculous things amongst your people. And God, I pray even this morning, Prepare our hearts. Do that work even now. God, help us to find every area of our life where we're not yielding to You. Where we're not obeying You. And by Your Spirit, through the work of Your Son, lead us to faithfulness. God, if anyone's here who doesn't know You, who maybe walked in here thinking, well, I'm a Christian because I've done this or done that or I've been baptized and I grew up around family that were Christians. I've called myself a Christian all my life. God, might they see 
beginning this morning and through the rest of the book of Acts, know it's about a supernatural encounter with the living God. We must confess our sins, repent, and receive His regenerating work through His Son. Might you do that today in the hearts of any who need you in that way? And God, we pray you would continue to do that throughout our study. But God, my prayer for our study in the book of Acts, for our church, God, you would continue to forge our unity in you. Continue to bring us closer in a oneness to you. And God, give us a, an appreciation for who we are, who you've made us. Give us a, a desire to be a good steward of the Spirit of God. That not only have you brought us to life by, but you've given us, Holy Spirit, you've indwelled us and empower us to live for you. Might you give us a joy that we see in the disciples and the apostles, even in the midst of prison and persecution, so that their hearts were full of joy. God, give us that as a church. But God, also give us this, the seriousness that we see in these these saints. The seriousness to live for you. Father, we're grateful for what you have done in our church, what you are doing, and what we know you will continue to do. And God, even now as we sing, let us sing, not just as words from our mouth, but a confession from our soul of who you are, of who we are in light of you, and what you've called us to do and be in this world. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.